Hey everyone, welcome to the Raising Helmets podcast. We are here with our special guest, Joseph. He's nursing right now because this was the best time to record a podcast, but he was hungry. Exactly. And it's part of our openness to life. <laughs> we feed our children as well. <laughs> that's how they stay alive. So if you hear cute suckling noises, that's him. And not me downing a beer. <laughs> I was going to say, and not Kyle. And then I was like, no, that would be weird. Anyway, we are The here. Roman Circus guys are definitely not going to listen anymore after this episode. I think they're going to listen even more. That made it worse. All right. Zach leaving, and Matt, let us know. We're leaving this in. So we are here to talk about a very, very, very interesting concept that could take several podcasts, which is why we're only going to talk about a small part of it. You, yes, we're going to shorten it immensely. Right. I mean, we're looking at a book that's like 500 pages. We could easily talk about it. Anyway, I'm a huge fan of this. Um, as many of you know, I am an expert in childhood education by osmosis. Because I'm married to Carrie, who is the actual expert. I have a bachelor's in child development, and I continue to really like to read and learn about this stuff. I don't know if expert is an exaggeration or not. She's very, very good at this stuff. I Um, have a blog that um, hopefully will have more posting on it. It's cultivatedchildhood.com if you want to check out more of this stuff. Yeah, and you've written about at least the first part of this. I have written a little bit about this on the blog, yeah. And so it's definitely worth reading. I'm a huge fan. I don't click on very many articles. Obviously, I click on yours because you wrote them. But I, I'd like to say, <laughs> Thank you. I'd like to say, even if you didn't write them, I would still click on them, even though it's not anywhere near my field of interest. Because I think you're especially good at making them compelling. Oh, that's really sweet. Thank yeah, you, babe. We're sweet posting in real life on the <laughs> podcast. Oh boy. So this theory is called the seven stages of man. The eight ages of man, but you were really close. The eight ages of man. Not There's one more, and they're not stages, they're ages. Right? You can call them stages, it's okay. Okay, so I'm going to, as we agreed upon beforehand, I'm going to attempt to explain them, and then you're going to correct me. Yes, we're also only going to talk about the first two. Today. We'll talk about the rest eventually. Okay. And the idea behind this is that a human being goes through these eight ages over the course of their lifetime, Mm -hmm. but also they go through, this is what I find most fascinating, is that a human goes through all eight ages in a ton of different activities as sort of microcosms of existence. Is that true? It is, um, but I think it'll make more sense once you understand a little bit more about the ages. Right, but that's my hook. this is that you can look at this in your own life as a human being but also you can look at it in everything that you do basically yeah and so the idea is that you enter a first stage um and then once you complete it you can enter the second stage second age and Mm -hmm. the better you do at the first age the more successful you're going to be in the second age right they build on each other so these these come from a book called Childhood and Society by psychoanalyst Eric Erickson, who studied children and their development in the 20th century. And you've read me excerpts of this book, and I've been very impressed by it. Yeah, he's a little wordy. I've cut down a couple of quotes for you. Um, Hopefully they'll make sense on the air because they can be a little dense to read. And approximately when did he write this? Published 
1950. So there are eight ages, and the first age is trust versus mistrust. Mm -hmm. And a baby's expected to go through this trust versus mistrust phase for the first year or so of life. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, the stages all get progressively longer. The first one is by far the shortest. It's the first year. And they're all this versus concept too, right? Yeah, there's um, there's like a, a value or a virtue that the age strives for, in this case trust, and then there's like a pitfall or a danger that if you don't successfully complete the stage that you could fall into, which in this case is mistrust. Right. And it's not the kind of thing that you either pass or fail either, right? No. I, I think it's pretty... When it comes to human psychology and whatnot, there's not a lot of things that are pass-fail. Right. The concept of trust is the idea that a baby has been in the womb in a kind of a state of homeostasis. Everything's been the same. They've always received food. They've always been comfortable. They've always been warm. And then suddenly there's this kind of traumatic event of birth, and they enter what is to them a whole new world and a whole new universe where none of these things are constants anymore. And their first job and kind of the question that's foremost in their brain is, am I going to be cared for? Am I going to be safe? Can I trust this place? Can I trust this people to make sure that I'm fed and changed and kept warm and that the same people will be there for me, that my caretakers aren't going to leave and then never come back. Right. So the baby's developing rules for how he understands nature to work. What are the rules of my existence is what he's asking himself. Yeah. And so Erickson's theory was that coming to understand these things as um, reliable, that you you have a family that's going to be there for you. They're going to feed you when you're hungry. They're going to change you when you're wet. They're going to wrap you up when you're cold that um, that's the brain's first exposure to coming to be able to trust something as always reliable, and it's something that you'll come back to your entire life, is this experience of having learned that some things are absolutes and you can rely on them all the time. Right. But he said, interestingly, and this is the first quote I wanted to share with you guys, that it's not that... It's not that the baby has to never go through any kind of trauma or they'll fail this stage. Um, here, I'm going to start reading. Mothers create a sense of trust in their children by sensitive care of the baby's individual needs and a firm sense of personal trustworthiness within the trusted framework of their culture's lifestyle. Which, to unpack it a little bit, to me that just says that it's okay if your kid cries a little bit. It's okay if... They have to wait on a feeding. The goal is for them to learn that they can trust you as a person to meet their needs. Um, not that they'll never feel a need, but that their parents are going to be there for them. Right. So when Joseph was in the NICU, even, we had less ability to comfort him when he was getting his shots or he had those monitors on him. But we were still able to teach him that we were going to make him okay as soon as we could, that eventually, soon, he would be fed and comforted and held. And so right away, 
even if we weren't able to do exactly what we wanted, we were still able to start teaching him the rules. Yeah, the worst part of his care was definitely when they needed him to get this phototherapy treatment, and they put him on a bed um, that was kind of flat, kind of cold. They turned out they accidentally put it under an air vent. So he was shaking and screaming the whole time, but because they needed as much of his skin exposed to the light as possible, they couldn't, um, he couldn't be wrapped up, we couldn't be holding him, he kind of just had to lie there, and we let him clutch at our fingers a little bit. Um, but that, in the NICU, they have some kind of gentler, I think, methods. They have ones that can be tucked inside their, they have lights that can be tucked inside their blankets and stuff, but because he had just been discharged from the NICU, what they had was this bed, and he needed the treatment, but he really hated it, and... Um, to him, what he needed was to be held and comforted by us. That's all he wanted, but we thought he needed this this light treatment, and it was really hard having to leave him in there knowing that he was waiting on us to pick him up, and we couldn't do that for him. This concept was really helpful for me in the first year of parenting Rory because it gave me a framework off of which to work. Um, rather than feeling pressured to do everything right all the time or to get him certain kinds of enrichment or am I doing enough tummy time, am I reading enough books, I could pull back and just ask myself, am I teaching him that he can trust me and that Kyle and I are going to be there for him and that whatever he's going through, the traumas of teething or whatever it was, that we're going to be here for him and that's the best foundation we can give him in this first year. Right, and when you explained that to me, that was really comforting to me as well and helped me to frame my actions and decisions and how we teach him about how the world works. Yeah, that, and that's really why I wanted to talk about this is because of how helpful it was yeah. for us then. And how intuitive it ends up being when you think about what a baby needs in their first year. They mm -hmm. need to learn all of the rules of their surrounding. And it's probably worth mentioning that Obviously, this isn't the case for all babies. Some babies go through some pretty incredible traumas in their first year, and they don't always have the same caregivers. Um, and that doesn't mean that they're screwed for life. There's, um, you know, humans are really resilient, and we're built to withstand stresses like that. This is, I guess, maybe the ideal scenario or how it's supposed to work. I think it's a really useful structure for understanding the, the rough outline of what's supposed mm -hmm. to happen. Because even if somebody struggles through, like, the first phase, knowing about this can help you to remedy that later on, right? Like, if you know that somebody had, had trouble with the concept of trusting their environment, then you can go back and help them to establish those connections. Yeah, um, kind of like Kyle was mentioning at the beginning, these stages do correspond to... Um, certain ages of a person's life but they kind of reverberate through every part of life like when you start a job you go through a period of learning whether or not you can trust your new workplace or new co-workers when you start a new relationship you kind of have to learn to trust one another and what things can you count on as constants in that relationship and what things can't you so even if the first stage doesn't go well and, and you get a shaky foundation, thinking about these ages can give you a place to work from when trying to remedy that.
Right. So Rory's almost two now. And so mm -hmm. he's out of trust versus mistrust if the timeline's supposed to be accurate. Because, of course, he's continuing to learn what he can trust. Mm -hmm. It's not like a phase ever just totally, totally ends. But the thing that I think really showed that we'd given him a good grasp of his ability to trust us and his environment was when we just left him to go to the hospital with Joseph. And he knew that even if mom and dad weren't here, they wouldn't put him into a situation that was unsafe. And he was really calm with Lauren and then with, with the Wilsons the next day. And then, you know, my mom and sister showed up and we were still gone at the hospital and he trusted that it was going to be okay because he That's was That's a really good safe. point. Yeah, he, he knew that mom and dad were going to come back and that he was going to be taken care of. That's a good point. So now he's into the second phase. Yeah, the second one is called autonomy versus shame and doubt. And this is what Erickson has to say about autonomy versus shame and doubt. The infant must come to feel that the basic faith in existence, which is the lasting treasure saved from the rages of the oral stage, will not be jeopardized by this about face of his, this sudden violent wish to have a choice. Firmness must protect him against the potential anarchy of his as-yet-untrained sense of discrimination. As his environment encourages him to stand on his own feet, it must protect him against meaningless and arbitrary experiences of shame and of early doubt. Basically, to unpack it, Erickson is saying that as you come out of the stage where you learn trust versus mistrust, the, the infant develops a desire to assert his own will. I'm sure this is going to be familiar to anybody who's been around a toddler. Well, that's what they mean by the terrible twos, right? Is that the kid suddenly has preferences and the ability to express his preferences. Right. Even if it's not very articulately. Which is part of the problem, right? Yeah. Um, so as babies kind of... I've heard it said that a baby if you could ask them about their sense of self, they would basically say that they consider themselves an extended body part of the parents. Toddlers are beginning to figure out that they're their own person and can make their own choices about things, even if um, they don't have a lot of agency or enforcement for those choices. Right. So that's why babies or toddlers often end up resorting to screaming or, or tantrums is because they strongly desire something and they mm -hmm. don't understand why they can't have that thing. Yeah, they're not thinking logically. Um, Erickson talked about their sense of discrimination. They're not always making good choices. And it's our job as parents to help guide them through when their cho choices are and aren't appropriate. So would a tantrum be an example of a failure? Not a failure failure, but like a breakdown in a child's autonomy? It's a breakdown in communication most of the time, I would say. Unless the child is, is in experiencing a lot of pain or having some kind of sensory issue or something like that. I would think that, I, in my opinion, most bad behavior is the result of a child trying to communicate something that they need or something that they want that's not being immediately granted by their environment right so they come up with 
against a barrier and they become frustrated because they don't know how to overcome that barrier. Yeah, it's a big emotion and they're not good with emotions and they're not good with communication and they're not good with delayed gratification. Right. So it's a lot of stuff to be handling when you're only one or two years old. So uh, I think where the lines start to blur together between the two phases is that the baby has developed the ability to trust his environment. Um, but then when he enters into autonomy, he starts to experiment with what exactly in his environment is changeable. Mm-hmm. Right. And Definitely. so, and so he has to learn that he can trust the environment to provide these different needs. Um, yeah, there's definitely still an aspect of trust to the parental relationship here because um, this is where shame and doubt comes in, actually. If you're constantly t- having to tell your child no, constantly rejecting their choices that they want to make, then they learn that they and their desires are all bad and they experience shame and doubt in themselves. But you want them to learn to become an independent person and you want them to learn how to make those choices really well. So, I mean, like small examples are giving them choices where you're good with either option and letting them decide what color pants, what do you want for breakfast, that kind of thing. Right. Do you want to go to the park or the pool? Yeah. And then to also not deny things arbitrarily right right um it's hard parenting a toddler we're learning this no one told us yeah like the other (laughs) night the other night when he wanted ice cream and he wanted it all for himself oh that was great yeah he was screaming rory ice cream and kyle said yeah come here over to the couch i have a bowl of ice cream and we can share it and uh, rory was really upset about that which was confusing because we were feeding him ice cream but no he managed to convey that the idea was not just to eat ice cream, it was to feed himself the ice cream in his high chair, far away from parents who could steal bites or control the spoon or anything. Which might be partially not wanting to share, but I also think it has to do a lot with the concept that he's big enough to eat his own ice cream, mm-hmm. right? Because I think he wouldn't have been happy even with his own. I think he wanted to show that he didn't need to be spoon-fed, because we've been spoon-feeding him ice cream because we don't want it to spill, yeah. but... Uh, I would argue that he is not big enough to feed himself ice cream because it still ends up everywhere. He did do okay last night, but he was also in his high chair where he's a little bit more calm and where mm-hmm. spills are easier to clean up. Uh, yeah. But I think, so I think one of the beautiful parts about this phase is watching them develop preferences because when you're a toddler and you don't know very much about the world, anything that you like, you like just a crazy amount because you're a toddler and your <laughs> ability to have like moderate preferences is pretty small. Your brain has three things in it. Exactly. <laughs> and so whatever is at the top, you're just really enthusiastic about. And uh, there was, I think there's a TV show that I haven't actually seen where the guy goes, I wish I could be as excited about anything as kids are excited about blowing bubbles. Mm-hmm. And this is the phase where you really start to see that excitement come out and be genuine because he gets to decide what he wants and express it. And when we were at the pool last night to stay on on subject, we told him, when you get home, you're going to have ice cream. <laughs> and we're a couple blocks away from the pool. And I kid you not, he ran with more enthusiasm than I have ever seen anybody run in my life, uh, all the way from the pool to home, which he loves the pool. But when he knew there was ice cream at home, he just booked it. 
And every once in a while, he would pause and he would turn to my sister and say, Lolo, ice cream. And he would wait until she caught up to him and then he would start running again because <laughs> he really wanted her to share this ice cream with him. Aww. And it's really cool to be able to see kids get excited about stuff like that and realize that there are certain things that he needs to do and then he can have it because mm-hmm. it's cool because you get to see him be excited about even just doing the thing in order to get to the part where he gets the thing he likes. Yeah, I mean, I get it. Toddlers are really rough, but um, that was my job working with two and two-and-a-half-year-olds, and I just really love that age. It's When you understand what they're going through and kind of how their brains work, in my opinion, the tantrums are pretty easy to handle and understand and sort of help them work through. And then you just get to be part of such a cool stage in life where the garbage truck going down the street is like the highlight of their day and they flock to watch. I loved that in my job. Or when Rory gets so excited because the school bus drives by. I think the biggest takeaway from this second phase is that it's tempting to treat a disobeying toddler as an adverse force or something that's working against you mm-hmm. and that you need to you need to beat down the idea of tantruming, right? And I think what this shows is that your goal is to help them to work through the emotions that they're experiencing and to help them process that, to teach how their autonomy can be used rightly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really, a much better way of looking at it than, than I think a lot of people look at it. Yeah, I think so. It lets you be part of a team that's that's helping this toddler learn how to live. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. So that is the first two of Erickson's Ages of Man and how they kind of relate to our respective children. When they continue to grow through the other stages, maybe we'll be a little more qualified to talk about those. When's the next stage? Uh, Let's see. Initiative versus guilt. I think he's about three. It's like preschool age. After that, they really start to lengthen out. That makes sense. Like like the last two are like midlife and then old age. So those those are a couple decades long. When we're feeling a little bit more self-reflective, maybe we can talk about the phases that we're currently in ourselves. Yeah. Actually, I got to revisit those. I don't remember much about being in your 20s. You are in your 20s, though. (laughs) I realize that sounds weird. (laughs) Well, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for sharing your expertise. Thanks for talking through this uh, as a fellow expert on our particular children. And we are now... Good to have you on the show. (laughs) We are now going to edit this podcast or maybe just stare at our cute kid for a while because he's done nursing and he's sleeping peacefully on Carrie's lap and it is just the cutest thing. Yeah, it is. Probably we should do that. Probably. So if anybody wants to come over and see our kid, you know where to find us or else. Say hi on the onlines. We'll post lots of pictures. Oh, he's, he's being real cute. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye, everyone. Did you like your brownie? This one. Which do you like more, brownie or ice cream? Brownie. Ice cream. Me too. Ice cream. Oops.